If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Hey, music lovers. The Cannamom Show podcast, in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars, is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at LampkinGuitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And as always, we have a guest. Well, not always. Sometimes we don't have a guest. As usual, we have a guest. And uh, today I'm, I'm super excited for personal reasons, which I'll explain to you. But uh, let me introduce our guest, Mr. Brandon Kumarasamy. Who is who has a YouTube channel uh, that's called Master Talk, but so much more. And I'm so curious and interested because I have a personal reason uh, why I want to talk to you. But uh, what you're doing is is really incredible because, uh, well, I've been told and I read this that public speaking is like sort of the second biggest fear uh, that people have after like fear of death. Is that true? I mean, that's what people say, Len. I don't think that's necessarily true because a lot of that fear, and we can talk about it if you want, is is created by society. I don't think it's it's fear that's innate within us growing up as kids. It makes sense. All right. So let me let me just find out a little bit more about you and we'll dive into uh what you do. Uh where did you grow up? Yeah, born and raised in in Montreal, Canada. I still live there to this day. And my parents immigrated from Sri Lanka in the early nineties. Got it. Uh, so you're a bilingual, right? French, uh, English, uh, other languages? Yep. French, English, and Tamil. Got it. Uh, what was your childhood like? Are you? Do you have any siblings, uh, both parents together? Yeah, you got it. So little sister, mom, dad passed away a few years ago. 
So pretty small family, but we have a lot of cousins though, because my dad had like seven siblings, but we had like seven, eight siblings too. So we have so many cousins, I can't even keep track of who they are anymore. But <laughs> yeah, I have a small family too, and I, uh, I'm an only child, so I don't have any uh, siblings. But uh, so I was close with cousins, and my my friends became like sort of my brothers and, and sisters. So I had that relationship uh, with them as well. So were you? A kid that had like, were you focused in academia when you were growing up? Or like, what was what was your overall goal you were going through? And what what kind of were you into sports? Like, what kind of kid were you? Yeah, for sure, man. So so growing up, you know, I didn't have much going for me. You know, I didn't really because in in Montreal, for those who don't know, you know, in that city, you need to know how to speak French, right, Len? So I didn't know the language. But how the how the how the state works is if your parents didn't go to English school, you're forced to go to French school. That's how I learned the language. So my whole life, I was speaking in a language I didn't even know. And I was presenting in one I didn't know either. So that wasn't so easy for me growing up. I also had a surgery when I was younger. So I have a crooked left arm. So I had a big cast on too earlier in life. And then I would say later, you know, when I when I grew up and I really understood the value of what my parents were were dishing out for me, which is being born in a first world country. Yeah. I started taking academics really seriously. So I, I was definitely an all-star when it came to grades. When I started focusing on it, anyways, I wasn't much of a sports guy. I was more of a nerd guy. But uh, but yeah, that's that kind of summarizes it. Yeah. So I'm an immigrant. I was born in Lithuania. And when I came over, I can I can relate because I did, I knew no English whatsoever. Nothing. And we moved, I lived in Philadelphia when we first came to this country and I was about six, uh, seven years old and started going to second grade and the kids would, uh, and it was, uh, you know, during uh, Lithuania was part of the Soviet Union. So it was during the time the United States boycotted the Olympics in Moscow in 1980 and uh, everybody was, uh, you know, the enemy of the state. I'm like, I left that place. I'm with you guys, but you know. Your mom wears combat boots on. So I would just, I don't know how to communicate. So I would just fight all the time. That was my thing. I would just constantly fight kids uh, until I knew how to communicate. And my, my dad was very proud of me for, for doing that. But it didn't, it didn't make a lot of uh, really close relationships with kids until I started learning language. So I kind of can relate to like going through and being sort of isolated and not being part of a certain group. How did you start kind of becoming uh having this interest in what you're doing and, and sort of the trajectory from academics, et cetera, to, uh, you know, being, being a person who's giving something to society. I, I feel. Oh, I appreciate it, brother. Definitely much later in life. You know, my goal in my tens, since we come from very similar background is, you know, for me, it was never about changing the world. It was never about being an entrepreneur over a YouTuber. Like that was never the goal. It was to get a really good job that paid a lot of money because my parents were both minimum wage workers. They both worked in factories and when I was growing up in Montreal. So my goal was how do I get a nice job, a fat paycheck, whether I was happy or not in that job, did it was really secondary to me. It was about making money. And I realized when I was 12 or 13, which is a weird age to realize this, I was which I kind of realized later in life that I was extraordinarily talented at mathematics and I was really bad at everything else. So I chose to be an accountant. So once again, nothing to do with what I do today. So I went to business school at 19 University and I started doing my bachelor's in accounting. And I had my oversized suit on and I'd go to all these cocktails to talk to all these people to try and get into big four accounting firms, right? KPMG, Deloitte, et cetera. So I go to these cocktails, Len, 
and I'm talking to these students who have internships at these companies, like my dream job. And I go, how did you get this job? And I thought they were going to answer with get good grades, but they started talking about case competitions. And I was like, what the heck is a case competition? And that's when I realized that it's a presentation competition that allows you to get drafted to the best jobs on Wall Street or the best jobs in business. And that's how I learned how to speak and how to coach other people on to speak. And that's what accidentally led to Master Talk. Yeah, it's so funny uh, how much parallels we have. So my first uh, job, I couldn't, I went to physical therapy school. Don't ask why, because I had no interest in physical therapy. My parents actually had an intervention. My parents ended up kicking me out of the house, but then they had an intervention for me. Yeah, for cannabis and all that stuff, which was my my medicine. And the irony that they both consume formulations that we manufacture now. So <laughs> it's back in full circle. But <laughs> exactly. But uh, and I was I met my my. So anyway, my parents had this intervention for me. They brought a psychiatrist in to actually talk to me. So I think it's an immigrant kind of mentality where you have to get a real job. I would say I'm going to, I got accepted to two schools that I applied to, Temple University and University of Miami. And University of Miami was like, I could not even come close to affording it. So I ended up going to Temple, uh, which is in, in Philly. And uh, I wanted to go to sort of music and and uh, the business of music. I have no idea. My, my One of my mentors was Rick Rubin who's a music producer. I really didn't know what Rick Rubin did, except he was in, he made Beastie Boys music. He made LL Cool J, but I had no idea. I knew he would, didn't have, he didn't play an instrument. He didn't. So I was going to go to music and my parents were like, you're going to end up being a piano teacher or a music teacher. I said, no, I don't, I don't play instruments. So they had this intervention and psychiatrists came in and they all kind of ganged up on me and said, <laughs> physical therapy, you don't want to be a doctor. You don't want to be a lawyer. Physical therapy, you can get out and make $65,000 a year and all this stuff. Yeah. I'm like, great, great. Exactly. Baby, let's go. Let's go. I I was just miserable going to school. I learned a lot, which is interesting because I use some of that knowledge now, but I had no interest in that. So um, when I met my, who's now my ex-wife, my girlfriend, we were, I was uh, trying to do music on the side. I was, uh, I had a company that was selling music. And then uh, she goes, time for you to get a real job. So this is where I'm leading to. So my first real job, I sent, I did my resume. I sent out a bunch of companies. I got two job offers. And one of them was from a company called Pricewaterhouse. So my first corporate job, and I used to have long hair and uh, earrings, big hoop earrings. And so I put my hair in a ponytail, took out my earrings, put on my suit and tie, and went to work for Pricewaterhouse. So I was there. Uh, you know, even after the merger with Cooper's or PwC, so we have uh, this. Uh, but I was in a uh, on the consulting side, not on the on the audit side. But we have that in common with the, the old big six. It was at the time when I was I was starting. Yeah, so that's that's really uh, that's really interesting. So you started getting into these competitions. Let me. How was your first sort of presentation? Uh, was a were you a natural at it? You went up and you're like. Man, I got this, and you crushed it. When I did my first case competition, specifically, yeah, yeah. Uh, I wasn't that great, to be honest. In in the sense, I was really energetic, like this, super energetic. But I wasn't super great at it. I think the reason we did well, I think we got third place in our first one, was because they just loved our energy. 
I remember that first presentation like it was yesterday. We we walked into a room. And then they had the the judges introduce themselves because we had never really done a case competition before. We didn't really know who was judging this thing. And then they start talking. One of them goes, "You know, my name's Danny, and I'm the I'm one of the managers at this company." And then the third guy gets up and he goes, "Yeah, my name's Scott, and I'm the managing partner for the country." And we all just looked at each other. We're like, "Shit! <laughs> like this is not this is not for kids no more." So we got a little bit nervous when we heard that. And I think the reason he he gave us a third place, he just loved our enthusiasm and our passion, but I, we were garbage. And I'll tell you what happened, actually, funny enough. To differentiate ourselves from the other competition teams is we actually made a commercial for that company. But we screwed it up. And the reason we screwed it up was because it's like a packaging company. Like, you know, they package juices. But we used a competitor's logo in the fucking commercial, so he screwed. Brilliant. He was so pissed <laughs> off, but he was so happy that we made the effort that he brought us into the final round. So that's that's hysterical. All right, so l- let me go back to my original question about this whole fear. So when you went up, did, and maybe there's a natural thing. I don't know. I'm 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 in, in the genetics field, so I, I would always try to find out: is there a genetic predisposition, maybe? And I don't know for somebody to feel more comfortable. Uh, you know, th- there is a gene for response to social situations. So the way that I describe this gene is: some people are introverts, some people are extroverts. And when there's a, when you're an introvert, you can still go out and be in a social event. And be on your game. You can be a great presenter. But when you're back in your car, you're back home, you're like, oh, man, my energy is drained. It took so much energy for you to do that. Or, but an, uh, an extroverted person can actually feed off the energy of the crowd. Like, I like, hey, give me some applause. Give me some of that. It feeds me. So I, I feel stronger when I get that uh, energy from other people. But I, I wonder if there is something in an individual Or maybe it's just a combination of technique to go out there and say, I'm going to speak in front of a crowd. I want to contribute to the crowd and reduce those nerves, you know, that fear. Because there's so many people come to me. I had a person, uh, maybe my ADD is kicking in too, but I had a person who actually said to me, uh, they they have an expertise in something and they have such a hard time presenting. They were going to pay me to go and present their material for them with them being there and, and actually doing the work. I was like, I don't know your material. Fine. I'll be happy to go and, and do that. But maybe there's something that some people, and I, and I used to get nervous and I still get butterflies when I come up and speak until I start speaking and, and I'm in my flow state uh, on that. But I was just wondering what you what you think for yourself personally and how can people kind of overcome this whole fear? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there might be a disposition, but I don't really like to think of it that way. I think most of us can be great speakers because, heck, if I could do it, I mean, anyone could do it. I mean, I grew up speaking in a second language. I still have a crooked left arm to this day. And, you know, I have a bachelor's degree in accounting. Like, hell, if I could do it, I'm sure anyone can. I think the better, the, the, the more relevant point is why do most of us fear communication? And the reason is actually really simple if you think about it. Where do we learn how to speak? The way we learn how to speak mostly in a formal way is school. High school, elementary school. But all of those presentations, brother, have three fundamental problems. 
One is they're all mandatory. We don't wake up one morning and say, hey, Len, you want to get breakfast and present all day? Nobody says that. So that's one. Second problem is all of those presentations are different. It's never, hey, what do you like talking about, Len? Do you like to talk about Metallica and amazing pictures and photography and weed? Like, no, you got, you got to talk about Shakespeare and poetry. And then after you've done that, you have to talk about the history of Missouri. And you're like, I don't even live in Missouri. Like, what's the point of doing this? Right. And that's number two. And then number three, the worst thing. I'm shocked that the education system makes our kids do this. All of the presentations are tied to a punishment. So if you don't do a great job, not only do you not get a pat on the back, you get a slap in the face. You lose like 20 to 25% of your grade. So what's the conclusion here? The conclusion here, Len, is we grow up believing that communication is a chore and nobody wants to get better at doing the dishes. It's interesting. Yeah, I was. you're leading down the, a path that I wanted to go into about. So uh, this, by the time people listen to this, I, have, I will already have completed this. But this Saturday, I'm speaking, I'm doing like a TED Talk uh, uh, at the Green, Green Summit. So everybody like Steve Wozniak is uh, one of the keynotes. It's, it's a bunch of really big time people and then me. Uh, so I don't know what I'm You're doing the there, but guy. You're the biggest guy there. <laughs> so, uh, I get to do my 15 minutes. I usually can sp- I speak for an hour. 15 minutes is going to be interesting, but I guess my question is, first of all, uh, you, you, you have nerves, right? You, how do you overcome that? And are there any specific tips that I should be aware of? Uh, when I'm going up and speaking to an audience. And and you're absolutely right about one thing. It's about knowing your material and being passionate. I think the biggest thing that people underestimate is your connection to the passion of what you're speaking about. So for me, I am truly passionate about it. I can talk about you know medical cannabis, personalization, genetics. I can talk about music, but you put me up there to talk about you know, I don't know, technology or accounting. Oh, the numbers start coming at me. I, I don't know what the hell I'm talking. I can probably get through it, but man, people are going to be bored because I'm not passionate about the material. So is that like the secret sauce? Mm, that's a good point, man. That's hilarious. But you know what I would say is, you know, how do we overcome those nerves? What I would say is the answer is you don't. There's always a level which all of us are scared. I'll get an example with me. Let's say me and you are having lunch and my phone starts to ring and I pick it up and it's Elon Musk. Let's say he says, you know, Brendan, I really like your YouTube channel, man. Can you come coach me tomorrow? I'll fly you on my private jet. I'll pay you a million bucks for the day. How does that sound? Would I shit my pants? Yeah, of course I would shit my pants. That's life. There's always a level in which all of us are fearful. The way that I think about it is communication fear is like a boxing match where one side of the ring is the fear, the anxiety, the stress, the nerves, and the other side of the ring is why. Why is it important for us to share our message with the world? And the goal, my friend, is not for the fear to leave the ring, but make sure that when the bell rings and the match begins and your message and your fear meet in the middle of that boxing match, that your message gets the knockout punch and wins the match. And if we think about it like that as a dichotomy to manage, we'll be successful. Yeah, always connect to the why. You're absolutely 100% right on. Uh, And I see this all the time. So some people have a why, 
and it's really important to them. And, but they're droning on and on and on. By the time they're 15 minutes in their presentation of, uh, you know, the science behind everything, they may be bad, but they're not expressing that. So I'm not energetically connecting with them. I'm already tuned out. And sometimes I think it's like, because when somebody has ADD, they have sort of depletion of dopamine. So my mind starts looking for that square of dopamine. I'm not getting from professor, you know, X, Y, Z, because they're telling me all this stuff. I'm already tuned out. So is that enough? Is that why? Because they're connected to that why, but they're not connected to me. Oh, yeah, 100%, Len. Right, and, and that's a separate conversation. So one side of that was fear. So at least the good news in the example you gave is that person isn't scared to present. They just like talking about, that, like hearing themselves talk. But now, now, it's, now it's the next level. Now, now let's have the next level conversation is, do you actually want people to retain the information? So it's great that you get to go on your, your soapbox for 15 minutes and talk about yourself. But now the next piece, not you in particular, but the person you mentioned, but now the next piece is, now do you actually want to create an impact for the people that you're speaking to? And that's a decision each of us want to make. And some people, unfortunately, they just want to hear themselves talk. We can't do... Those people are lost misfits. We can't do anything with those people. But for the people who actually want to make a difference, then, then the harsher feedback comes into play, which is getting that critical feedback. Hey, like, and I coach a lot of PhD scientists on this. Look, you can't go too deep into your tech because you're speaking to a lot of people who don't understand your technology, who aren't as deep in it as you. So how can we pull out the key insights, the key summary points in a way that will get people to really gravitate and take action? That's why the way I define communication, Len, is simply this. How do we convey an idea to a specific audience to achieve a specific outcome? And if the outcome isn't achieved, if people don't take action on what you're saying, then your presentation falls flat. So can everybody be a great speaker then? I personally believe anyone can, but let me add a caveat, anyone who wants to get better. Like, do I think every human being on earth can be a great speaker? Of course not, because not everyone on human earth wants to get better at anything. Most people don't even read a book. Like most people don't want listen to a podcast, but the people who do spend time on themselves, definitely, no doubt. So, and you're right, I, I sort of shifted the, the initial question about fear and and I kind of enjoy the fear a little bit. And I don't know if everybody, because excitement and fear give you the same neurochemistry. It, it actually secretes the same neurochemicals. So I like the feeling because there's adrenaline there. Like you get that little bit of a rush and it feels good to me. So instead of saying, oh my God, I'm fearful of speaking. I'm like, oh man, I'm getting, it's that tingle feel, man. I want to go out there and do that. So I think it's a mind uh, mindset shift a little bit. And, and I, I'm glad you brought that that up about the the concise, what your presentation is. And, and sometimes I find it personally, once again, I guess it's all about me. So I find it personally that the biggest challenge that I have in speaking is getting my slides to match what I'm trying to say, because I don't give a shit about the slides, really. They're just, they're just a distraction for me. I want to communicate my message to people and the slides themselves, what I'm trying to present, to me, they get in the way of my presentation because I'm not a linear speaker. I can be all over and still get, I have a beginning. I know where I want to end up, but everything in the middle is going to be like this, like all over the place. Uh, so the, the slides do help me uh, kind of get a cadence in the a linear presentation. 
But the point I'm trying to make is that some, some people who go through this process of, of making a presentation, uh, they, you can see that it's all structured. It's, uh, and maybe it's a better way to present when you have that structure. Uh, I just want to get your, your thoughts on, on that from a, from a coaching standpoint. Yeah, for sure, Len. Super simple. I, I think that we should do whatever we're comfortable with. So in your case, you're more of an ad hoc speaker. So you like going and visiting different places in, in your presentation. So for you, slides might not be the great way of approaching it. Whereas other speakers like Seth Godin are a lot more structured, but are just as successful, but they use slides all the time. The way that I, I attack this from a coaching perspective, though, is I force clients to be good at both. So for example, I usually have, especially if they're getting started in their journey, I usually have them make slides, but then I force them to present the same keynote without slides. So that way they can experience both. They're prepared for both. Because sometimes slides might be useful. I'll give you an example. Let's say it's a pitch, like some of it's a pitch and you're talking about, you want to have a slide so it's easier for people to catch your email and write it down. So that would be good. Or you keep it minimal. There's like five slides in your deck, even if it's a 20-minute presentation. That's one way. So I think there's different nuances, Mm -hmm. but the general idea is the same. Learn how to master both environments so you have more tools in your arsenal. Uh, Great point, uh, for sure. So did you have certain people that you listened to that influenced you? Were you watching people's presentations saying, hey, this is interesting, and started looking at different patterns between some of those people? Like, what, what were your influences and how did you start uh, you know, getting better and, and working on your craft? Yeah, for sure, Len. I would say for me, you know, I'm the summary of like hundreds and hundreds of different speakers, probably thousands at this point, that I've studied at an individual level. But I would say for me, my top three influences are probably Gary Vaynerchuk, Scott Harrison, and Seth Godin. And I'll talk a little bit as to why. Gary V, because he has a very aggressive, direct style, which I appreciate, very tough love in your face. But he also has the humility of someone who can talk with anybody. So relatability. He's also a humble guy, but relatability. Like he can talk to a six-year-old as relevant as a, as a 60-year-old, which I think is super fascinating. So that's something I've always wanted from his style. So can, can I ask a question uh, between yeah, John. Uh, So if, uh, and I agree with you with Gary V. Uh, we have a lot in common, both immigrants from the Soviet Union. I've seen Gary actually speak. I used to be a commercial real estate uh, broker uh, for a company called Keller Williams, but the commercial division of, uh, of Keller Williams, KW Commercial. And they used to have this retreat or this this meeting of all the people throughout the country. That uh, It was in New Orleans. And Gary was one of the keynotes. I think he was the first, like, I'm trying to, Nick, Nick, uh, what the hell is Nick's last name? I'm going to mess it up. It's the guy that has the flipper, uh, probably not politically correct to describe him, but it, he has no arms. Uh, and only one uh, flipper. But I know who he, you're talking Nick, about. I just Nick, it's Nick, like V something. Yeah, something chichich. <laughs> anyway, I'm I'm messing it up. And if you guys know, I'll I'll email you. Just reach out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So he was the and and Gary went before him, and he was he was still new to the game a little bit, but I could sense. First of all, he was using, you know, he was cursing and all that stuff as he does. And it was shocking to people. And I'm like, and people are like, oh, you know, the language, language. I'm like, who cares? That's the way he's speaking to the audience, the way he normally speaks. He wasn't dressed in a suit and tie the same way that everybody. So relatability is absolutely key. 
it's so, so interesting that, that Gary would uh, come out and do that because a lot of people didn't do that uh, at that time. So I guess the question is, is that relatability by being comfortable in your own skin, being yourself, you pick up on that energy from, from people, uh, right? Absolutely. I, I think for me at the end of the day, here's the way I think about it, Len, is communication how I define it is how do we convey an idea in a way that achieves a specific outcome for the specific audience that we're speaking to? And even if the guy makes all the, a lot of mistakes in communication, boy, does he home run and knock out every single outcome that he speaks about. He always gets what he wants from that speech. And that's why he keeps getting hired back for other speaking engagements. So all the respect to him. In terms of relatability, I think the reason why he's so good at it is because he really takes the time to talk to his fans one-on-one. Like he just had his first VCon conference a few months ago. That d- dude literally took thousands of selfies in those three days. Like it's ridiculous how many one-on-one conversations he had in three days. Even if he doesn't have to anymore. The guy's a multi-hundred million dollar net worth at this point. Why does he need to talk to anybody who's not batting at his level? So yeah, I think that's why he's so good at it. Okay. Uh, so the second one was, was it Seth Godin? Or I, I forgot your... your You're uh, all good. So the okay. second one is Seth Godin. You got it. So okay. Seth Godin, as we all know, marketing mogul, has written a bunch of bestsellers, really successful guy. And he's a genius in marketing. The reason I like the guy is because he's so good at packaging information in such a unique way. So whenever I think about my thought leadership, I want to do the same thing as well with my ideas. So... When, uh, who was the third one? I'm sorry. Yeah, you're all good. So the third one is Scott Harrison, who's the CEO of Charity Water. It's a nonprofit. He started to get people access to clean water. So um, is there a certain parallel between all of them is that, uh, that you connect with? Because I'm trying to, uh, there's so much content. There's so much noise. How do you pick these? Like you go through and you watch their videos and say, that person connected with me, that person connected with me. How, how do you know? It's, it's an excellent question, and there's an easy answer to this, Len. There's no right answer. So for everyone, that list is going to be different. I, I think it's a mix of emotion, which is not data-driven at all. You just feel an emotional connection towards them that you can't really explain through words. And then another piece is, do they have a quality that you're looking for in yourself? So for example, when it comes to Gary Vee, look, I don't have the social media following he does. So he has something that I'm looking for in my life, the way that he relates to people. I want to keep getting better at that. That's one piece, right? That The other piece is the idea of Scott Harrison, right? The guy, whenever he presents, if he doesn't do a good job, people go without water because he's raising money for his charity, right? So that's something that high level of pressure that he puts on his shoulders to deliver. And I try and put that pressure on me whenever I present. And then with Seth Godin, it's really like, my God, like the ridiculous amount of... The guy's still writing a blog every single day, Len. He's been writing a blog every day since the dawn of the internet. Like literally since like 1990 or something. And he hasn't missed a day in 32 years. Isn't that wild? Like, that's crazy. You, 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 you have to really be passionate and love and say, this is my job. Well, I mean, there's people who wake up every single day and they go to work to write. They walk from their bed, they go into, and they, they force themselves. Like uh, Sylvester Sloan used to say, like, he wakes up, you know, five, six o'clock in the morning, gets his coffee, goes in and sits there in front of a page. Even if it's two hours and he doesn't write anything, he forces himself to do that as a job because that's his job. But I, you know, he's probably passionate about it too. You got to have 
a certain love and passion in order in order to do that. For, think about it, 32 years of blogging. I can I can barely keep anything uh, consistent in my life like that. So it's it makes total sense about that passion love. Um, I wanted to ask you um, when you started public speaking, what what gave you the idea to do this for free, like free tips that what I think what you're doing is fantastic. And it's such, it's such a, um, but you're given such value to people because it's, it's needed. And it's not just like, it's not just clickbait kind of thing where it's like, <laughs> Hey, you get all this stuff all the time. Like, Hey, be a better speaker, click here, you pay for, you know, whatever it is, but you're actually giving value for free. Uh, how did you come up with that? Super simple, dude. And I appreciate you saying that, by the way. I really do. The, the reason is because it never started as a business. That was never the point. Like, you know, we talked about Series B, funny, all that stuff. I used to be a venture capitalist, right, when I was younger, a student VC mostly. And we would write checks for all of these startups. And I would coach a lot of these technology CEOs who were my buddies on how to raise capital. But they couldn't afford a coach. So I just helped them. I said, here, this is what you need to do with your deck. This is what... And nobody was helping these kids out. So when I started Master Talk, it was never about making money. And the reason isn't because I'm some philanthropist, because I hate that portrayal of me. It's because I, was, I already had a great job at IBM that was paying me a lot of money, right? That I worked really hard to get. So for me, Master Talk was never about, hey, how do I turn this into a business? How do I milk people for their money? It was like, okay, well, everyone before me is a successful communication coach who makes half a million dollars or more. Why aren't they sharing this stuff for free? Like, it's not going to hinder their businesses. So I just became the first one. I just said, shit, well, if you're not going to do it, I might as well do it. And of course, as you know very well, in, in, in the reputation you've built for yourself, Len, well, when you're re- generous for a longer period of time, people just want to work with you. So I just kept making videos in my mom's basement. I started professionalizing the channel all without any, any, any idea of making this into a business. And it actually turned into one. A lot of executives reached out. A lot of tech executives said, hey, I want you to coach me. And my business just exploded and created itself on its own. So there we go. I love that story, man, because, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm also passionate about what I do. And I used to coach uh, people as well. But then what happened is being a CEO of a company, you get dragged into day-to-day stuff. Like, I, I, do, I do love what I do, but I don't love everything throughout my day that I have to do as, you know... A, a CEO or whatever a leader in the company, it would be really nice to say, okay, I have this uh, this job and that's paying me this salary, and on the side, I'm doing what I enjoy doing, which is, you know, maybe thirty percent of the work that I do. However, then I'm working for somebody else and I'm making them money using my skills. So I, I can never, I never got it. It's like authority. I have an issue with authority. People tell me what to do. I'd rather do my do myself and struggle. But what you're saying is that because you were able to do this on the side and say, hey, I'm just going to give, you were able to transition out because people started contacting you and then you at some point started transitioning out. I think it's highly motivational because a lot of people are miserable at their jobs. Okay, so if you're miserable at your job, and you're just doing your job for the money, what are the things that you would do for free that you're passionate about? Maybe putting it out there like you did will start transitioning. Some people will connect to that. At some point, you know, maybe I can leave my 
well-paying job at IBM or whatever and actually do what I'm supposed to be doing for a living because one will take over another. Is that is that kind of what happened with you? That's exactly what happened. You know, what was different about me and many other people, Len, I actually liked my job. You know, a lot of people, they don't like their job. They're miserable. I liked it. It was tough. It's not an easy work, but I really liked the people there and all that stuff. But when I realized that time was more important than money, because my whole life I've just been focused on money. How do I get the right biggest paycheck? How do I become more successful? But when I realized really quickly that you don't really need a lot of money to be happy, and that time is the one thing you can't buy back. You could buy a yacht, but you can't buy your 20s back. When you, I realized that, I was like, shit, well, how should I spend my time? And every time I was in an, a meeting, you know, doing technology implementation, all that stuff, I would just go, shit, like for every hour that I'm doing this, I could be on a podcast with Len and promoting my message to people who need to hear it. So I said, what's a better use of my time? And that's when I made the decision to cut my salary in half, more than in half actually back then, and do it full time. Obviously, I'm grateful now. It worked out a lot better than I expected, but here we go. It's a risk, man. That's a lot of people are hesitant to take that risk. And you're absolutely right. You don't need a lot of money to be happy. And there's things that you can cut back on, but time is key. And then also, if you have something in your heart, in your in your mind that you want to try, at the end of the whatever life you have, you don't want to have those regrets. So give it a shot. I mean, I don't I'm not a big believer in failure. I know that Silicon Valley is, you know, fail, fail forward. I like the whole thing of win or learn kind of thing instead. I don't think it's failure. It's a learning experience or you win. So what's the risk? There's no real risk uh, to you to do that. Uh, you mentioned the three public speakers you mentioned. Who else? Like Historically, who's a great public speaker? I mean, there's so many. We can go through all of them. Uh, Tony Robbins, I think, is exceptional. I've seen him in person. I've watched videos of him. The guy is... Definitely uh, world class. Les Brown's really good. He comes to mind as well. So, and t- Tony Robbins, uh, I've been, I- I've been to a bunch of from from business mastery to uh, all his all his events. Same. How, how does he? How does he not pee for like fourteen hours? I'm always trying to figure it out. Does he wear a diaper? Does he wear a catheter? I don't get it. There, it ha- I'm sure there's a diaper somewhere there. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> but just to be frank, he doesn't do that anymore because he's getting older now, right? So he actually takes a lot of breaks because I went to Business Master a few months ago. So he's not he's not 14 hours a day straight anymore. Like before when he was younger, he was crazy. So so things have changed quite a bit since then. Yeah, so you were saying Les Brown. I, I interrupted you as well. No, no, no. You're all good. You're all good. Yeah, yeah Les, Les is really good. I mean, there's so many. Scott, I think we talked about Scott already. Yeah, yeah. And the list goes on. Brene Brown's really good too. Marissa Pierre. Great. Uh, so why are they great public speakers? I would say for me, the reason they're great is they're able to convey ideas in a way that gets people to get their butts off of their seat and take action. I think that's the big lining thread with all of them. Like Gary Vee, people could tell him all day he's aggressive, you say filler words, but you ask anybody in that room, hey, what made you post on TikTok? Almost all of them will say, well, because Gary Vee kept kicking my ass until I, I started making videos, right? Same thing with Brene Brown, right? What, what, what is it about Brene? Oh, she really taught me the importance of vulnerability. So I started being more vulnerable in my workplace and that really showed me leadership. 
So what the lining thread of all the best in the world have in common is they don't just share information. They share an information in a way that creates a burning desire within you to actually take action on that information. And I feel that's the lining thread. Uh, love, love that. I mean, that's, that's exactly what I, there are so many speakers that you listen to. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm grateful that I, I'm invited to some of these uh, conferences and, and speak a lot of them are very sciencey, and I'm listening to talks. And at the end of it, okay, I got information. I got some information, but it didn't motivate me in any way to take any action whatsoever. Okay, I got it. I'll move on to the next one. So uh, this is, you hit the nail on the head. This is one of my desires to make sure that people walk away when, with something. Here's what you, I would like you to do. And if you have any questions about it, contact me direct. I don't care. Here's my cell phone number. Here's my, I will help answer your questions, but I want you to take action. And I want you to understand that. So I I think it's a brilliant, brilliant point that people make. And I think one of the keys to presenting anything that you want to talk about, you want to motivate people to do something. Otherwise, I'll just read a book. I don't need to, uh, you know, have you talk to me. So that's I don't, I don't know if that's uh, what you're... Uh, anyway, we're aligned on that uh, note. Um, when you started your YouTube channel, how did you get people to watch or, or listen? What was... Uh, what, did you start, you know, I'm going to do this marketing campaign? Or how did you actually start getting people to uh, to engage with you? S- super simple, and Great question. You know, a lot of people think follower is important. For me, it's not about a thousand followers, it's about a thousand conversations. The reason I hit a thousand subscribers in only four months of starting my channel had nothing to do with the algorithm, had nothing to do with even the quality of my content. It had everything to do with my network. The way that I got to a thousand subscribers is I DM 2,000 bloody people. That's it. I went to everybody, because remember, like, if for those who are listening to the story correctly, I had coached for three years for free before I started MasterTalk. Right to your point, like you said very accurately, this is a pure mission. This was never about like, okay, guys, I'm going to coach for free for two and a half years and start selling a bunch of products. Obviously, I sell products now. I'm a successful coach. I make money. But it wasn't, it wasn't that at the beginning. So I went back to all of those people who landed jobs at Goldman Sachs, landed jobs at Deloitte, IBM, McKinsey. They all, they're, all ha- they're all raining in fat paychecks because I coached them all for free. And I said, okay, guys, I'm not going to ask you for a penny, but you're going to do something for me. You're going to promote the living shit out of this YouTube channel. And they did. And that's how I got to 1,000 subscribers. And then after that, what happened was a few months, I'd saved a lot of money from IBM because I'd lived in my mom's basement for a long time. And then I used that extra capital to, to fund my best friend's production. And he started professionalizing my videos and the rest was history. Uh, great. Love that story. Uh, so do you, is it okay to be able to ask people after you give them something for free, is it okay to go back? Because some people don't like to do that, to go ask them to reciprocate. Uh, can you do something for me now? Is that, is that okay to do? I mean, look, everyone's got their own opinions on this. I think it depends what you're asking to reciprocate on. Yeah. Like I wasn't, I wasn't asking them to give me money, right? I was going like, okay, well, I shared all this shit for you for free. Can you help me share this stuff for free to other people? So it's not, it's not like that bad of an ask, but it's a different, like with my clients though, I'm very aggressive with referrals. You know, 50% of my business comes from referrals. 
And the reason is because they paid me for a service and they got 10 times more for what they paid for. So naturally, it's in their best interest to share my work with other people. But it's just, a. here's the way I think about it. Different gives for different people, but in that journey of asking, always deliver more than what you ask for. That's always where I, where I stand on this. I don't mind asking people for anything. I mean, I, I think if I remember, I asked you to be on the show, right? But if I ask you for something, I better give. I better deliver on the show. I better not come here and just say, do sales pitches all day. I better crush this interview. And that's the way I've always seen it. So you just got to give more than you ask. And I think it all, it all sorts out at the end. What yeah, do you I think, think? Do you agree? Yeah, with this? Yeah. You're, doing, you're doing okay. Yeah. No, okay. <laughs> no, you're crushing, you're crushing. Uh, so I, I completely agree. So I am my first, I guess, person that I started following in, in uh, personal, I don't even know, personal motivation. I, I don't know how you, how you describe it, coaching or whatever, was Jim Rohn. So Jim Rohn, who influenced Tony Robbins and all that stuff. I'll never forget one of the things he talked about was um, – Give more, like to uh, work on on more on you than you do on your business. So more on you. So for me, I love to to learn and I hate to study. And if there is a way that I can find shortcuts and I can get information from people I'm really interested in, that's me getting stuff for for me and getting better. Uh, being a better me than I was an hour or a day ago and whatever I can absorb, I can bring that to my company, to other people's companies. So it's all about being better. And, and it's not about, you know, how can I make money? How can I, Hey, a quid pro quo you do for me, I'll do for you. It's about, I am super, super curious. I want to learn as much as possible and I'm going to be better and I'm going to give you something in return. Like I'm going to give you something without actually expecting anything in return. And in, in my life, it's been like coaching. I, I didn't promote myself in any way. It was all word of mouth. It was like, Hey, I'm helping with this. Same thing with working with people. And, and, and right now, you know, one of the things we do, it's HIPAA compliance. So we can't really, I can't market to anybody anyway. But if there's somebody that comes in with a specific disease and we can help them and now they communicate to other people, hey, you know, or Len's company or Endocan or Len, help me give them a call. We get a ton of our business that comes from that. And there's a lot of stuff that we give away for free as well. So I completely concur with you 100% that this is all about a way to be able to give and contribute and contribute. And then it comes back to you tenfold. Uh, sometimes you forget that because you're you're running a business and you have PL, and you have investors, you have shareholders and all that stuff. What can we do? And you know, I like to take a step back and sort of go on a hike and get in my flow state and say, okay, let me say, what am I doing this in the first place? And go back to the basics and kind of get all that out of the way. And it always works out uh, that way, in my opinion. Um, is rehearsing important? Yeah, I would say rehearsing is important, Len, but in the right way. So what does that mean? That means communication for me and structuring presentations is like a jigsaw puzzle. You know those toy puzzles you see as kids? Kind of put those pieces together. So question for you, Len, super simple. Let's say you're working on a jigsaw puzzle yourself. Which pieces would you start with first and why? 
So I, I probably uh, start with the outline of the outside uh, first that usually if I haven't built a puzzle in many years, my daughter was little, that's what we did because I could start filling in the things that were kind of easy to fill in. There was no thought about them. They only fit there and then work my way from outside in usually. Absolutely. Completely agreed with you. So now the question becomes, why, did I, why do I bring that up? Because most of the time when we work on presentations, unfortunately, we do the opposite. We start with the middle first. We shove a bunch of content in our presentation. Shove, 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 shove. We get to the presentation. We ramble throughout the whole thing. The last slide's on something like this. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks. That's how most of us sound, which is terrible. And that's really the point, brother, is if you want to get better at practicing, practice effectively, which means practice like a jigsaw puzzle. Start with the edges first. Do the introduction 20, 30 times, not two or three times. Do it 20 times until it's perfect. 20 seems like a big number, but it actually isn't, Lynn, because your introduction is like 60, 90 seconds. It'll take you 30 minutes to get this done. Same thing with the conclusion. What's a great movie with a terrible ending? Last time I checked, terrible movie. Same thing with the close, <laughs> and then tackle the middle. So that's the best way to do it. Love that. It's a great, great tip. Uh... I have to make sure that I'm doing it correctly for Saturday. So I'll, I'll, I'll double check based on, on uh, your, your notes and your, your points. Um, it's a weird question. I just uh, thought of it. So I'll ask anyway. I, I'm a big music fan. I love music. Are there any musicians that you think are, are really good communicators, like when the, they're being interviewed? Or is that sort of uh, right, uh, hard to answer off the top of your head? Ah, that's an interesting question. Somebody who's a good talker, who's also a great musician. That would be tough off the top of my head. F funny enough, the only person that comes to mind right now, and he's not even a musician. It's just because he had such a great rap when he was on, uh, what was it, Sway? So, when he was on Sway, is Damian Lillard. But he's not, he's not a... <laughs> he's, he's, a he's an athlete, it's fine. Maybe he I wonder, maybe he's got some music out too. We'll, we'll just chalk it up to uh... his freestyle is amazing, Mike. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying, right? So good. Yeah. I... So yeah, he he's the only guy that comes to mind. I have to get back to you on that one. Who's a good like, like I don't know a lot of musicians who are also really good at at interviewing. I know Justin Bieber has done really well over the last few years. I think he's matured a lot. Yeah. As a human being and as an interviewer, but besides him, no one really comes to mind as someone. That's because that's because you're Canadian, so you're always going the Bieber route. I understand. Hey, what can I say? I'm, I'm, I have Bieber fever. What can I say, brother? Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. You hear some some people. I think Common does a really good job at, at interviews. I, I heard him speak many times. Drake he's too. A, he's pretty good too. Drake is pretty good. I mean, like I've had media training, and I just don't connect to the media training because it, it feels very robotic. But I, you can you can see when you're in the system, you go through media training. And the media training is different on camera versus like, you know, speaking to an audience. And it, it feels constricting. And, and like I said, it's me. And I'm not at the level of, uh, you know, the people that we mentioned. So perhaps, you know, if and when I'm at that level, I'll feel differently. I doubt it. But it's uh, it's the whole thing. Like I speak with my hands and I like to move. And I and I'm like, no, you, you keep your hands here. And if you want to move your hands, you sort of, and it doesn't feel natural to me to do all these things. So I, I still think that 
you're absolutely right. We, we can all speak, but I think there is still something natural to the individual that it's their secret sauce. Everybody has that secret sauce. And if when you connect to your secret sauce, that's when you become a more passionate, more interesting speaker. Technically, you can be great and you can coach somebody or you can coach anybody to be better, but you're, you, everybody has their, their ceiling, I guess, maybe. And if you can tap into that, you'll be the best version of you, but you're not going to be that person, whoever that person is, who's, uh, who may be an exceptional speaker that we look at. Matt, what are your thoughts on that? I, I mean, I completely agree. I think you summarized that so well. I think the only thing I would add is you're a lot better than you think. I mean, you're 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 the pre guy to Steve Wozniak, so I think you're you're not you're doing not too bad yourself. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm right. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting better. I, I I enjoy it, so that's my whole thing. Uh, I that's why I always find it fascinating when people are like, "Oh my God, public speaking!" I'm like, "Well, just just do it. Who gives a shit? I who cares what other people think? It's about you." You get up there and you do it, pat yourself in the back, say, fuck, man, great job. I did great. Let me do another one. I, w- I would love to do this every single day you know, because I enjoy it. And the more you do it, the more, the better you get like with anything else. So, you know, pick up the, and go do a, uh, I don't know, they used to have these things, Toastmasters or something like that, right? I, I did that too in my life because, so- well, like you said, with with uh, with school, I also had some times where you know you did get a not as good of a grade for presenting, but so I kind of had this a little trepidation, even though I, I thought I presented fairly well, but I had this trepidation. So I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna go right into the fear. That's sort of uh, that's my mindset. Uh, when I was a kid, I watched this movie called Nightmare on Elm Street. And uh, with Freddy Krueger, uh, for those of you that know, I'm watching it. It, it, it still is kind of scary. It doesn't hold up as well as it did uh, back in the day. And I remember I was watching this uh, person's house who lived down the street. And at night, I had to walk back home. And I was like, oh, my God. And I couldn't. I had nightmares, Freddy Krueger. So what I did was I bought a poster of Freddy Krueger. And I put it on the back of my bedroom door. So I am going to look at you. And I'm going to overcome that fear. And that's sort of... I don't know, it's been wrong, but it worked. I was able to sleep with Freddy and people were coming in my room like, why do you have Freddy Krueger? It's crazy to sleep. And I'm like, yeah, because he don't bother me anymore because we're tight. I look at him every night and I say, hey, what's up? You come at, come at me in my dreams, it's not going to bother me kind of thing. <laughs> so I do I do the same thing with, with fear. If I had trepidation about public speaking, I'm going right into the, the hurricane. Um, I think I read somewhere that you like to sing is that is that true the answer is yes man like i karaoke in eight different languages so i speak three english french and tamil but i can karaoke by the way i'm not a good singer <laughs> i can i i can sing i just i didn't say i could sing well so i want to make sure that the the track record is straight there so i can karaoke in mandarin japanese korean hindi and spanish outside of the three that i speak oh that's amazing man um all right so for the sake of time i'm gonna i'm gonna try to hit this really quick uh, I ask my guests the same kind of questions uh, at the end. Um, do you have any relation with cannabis? What are your thoughts about uh, all, all my cousins? All my cousins are into cannabis. I, I don't smoke that much, but mm-hmm. my uh, but my my cousins are. I think it's great. Yeah, and a lot of my clients are in that space as well. I think it's really healthy and it leads to a lot of great outcomes. I just don't smoke any joints. Uh, 
Do you remember what the very first concert that you ever attended was? The first concert? Yeah. The first one that I really wanted to go to that I went to was Dean. Dean is like a famous Korean musician. It was awesome. I loved it. It was super good. Do you remember what the very first album that you bought or CD or whatever? I don't know what. Maybe it's MP3s now or downloads. Who knows? I think I think if I'm being honest, the first time I ever paid for music was Spotify Premium. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> That's funny. I guess I guess that tells you how old I am. But there you go. Well, uh, all right. So bonus question: Please describe what your room looked like growing up. My room looks like trash, man. We didn't have a lot of money. So even my room now, I still live in my mom's basement, but even if I'm way more successful and all my CEOs know that. Yeah, it looks like complete trash. There's no posters. There's no decor. It's just, I basically look homeless. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. So, uh, Brendan, where can people find out more about you, engage in your services, or uh, tell everybody where they can find you? For sure, brother. Great to be on, man. Thanks for having me. So the first one is definitely the YouTube channel. Just go to Master Talk in one word. You'll have access to hundreds of free videos. And the second way to keep in touch is my free workshops. I do a free one over Zoom on comms every two weeks. And if you want to register for that, it's not a recorded webinar. It's live and I facilitate it. Go to rockstarcommunicator.com. Love it, man. Hey, thank you so much for being on. I truly enjoyed it. Great. I love your energy and I only wish you all the success in the world, man. Likewise, man. Thanks for all the support as well. Very kind of you, bro. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.